Hello and welcome to the Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Today we'll be discussing the Three Penny Opera with book by Bertolt Brecht and Elizabeth Hauptmann, adapted from a translation of Hauptmann's of John Gay's 18th century English ballad opera, The Beggar's Opera, um, and with music by Kurt Weill. Um, it opened in Berlin in 1928, and the first English translation was by Guilford Cochran and Gerald Krimsky, which premiered on Broadway in 1933 and closed after only 12 performances. So the version we'll be talking about today is the 1954 off-Broadway production, translated by Mark Blitzstein, which ran for 2,707 performances or seven years. Woo! So that is... uh, we're gonna. That was a lot of information, real fast. We're gonna dive more into that. We're gonna dive more into the recent revival with Alan Cumming. Uh, so, Ooh. Hannah, why don't you start by telling us about your familiarity with? Three sure. Opera. Yeah, I mean, it's true that I argued for us to do this. Um, this this podcast, we were gonna skip Three Penny Opera, but um, I felt strongly that we needed to talk about it, mostly so I could talk about the revival that I saw with Alan Cumming and Anna Gasteyer. Um, however, I will say during your intro, it reminded me that um, I spent a summer in London while I was in college, and we saw the Beggar's Opera. Oh, really? Yeah, we saw it. It was weird. We saw it at this outdoor band shell um, sort of location, so it was it was very pastoral, <laughs> which was funny because I was associating it in my head with um, Three Penny, and we'll get into that revival, but it was very, like, leather-clad... Uh, dark and smoky and so it was weird to see this like very pastoral source text <laughs> yeah it's it's, yeah. it's sort of I and mean, we'll get into this later but in the way yeah. that cabaret is kind of an homage to three uh three penny opera i feel like the three mm. penny opera revival was an homage to the cabaret revival yeah i feel that i mean barring alan the, cumming himself that makes sense um yeah we should get into that i mean it certainly feels like they exist in a similar sort of like cd world um well, yeah. Do you want to start by telling me about the Beggar's Opera? Because um, that's actually something that I did not do research into, but um, it's sort of the <laughs> oh, start God. of all this. I mean, it's true that it's been a minute since I saw it. I just remember there was like a lot of um, weirdness. Like there, were, I think there were a couple... No, I don't have enough information. <laughs> um, I remember um, very little. I remember like a feather duster. Um, <laughs> I remember there were, I think, like a couple different sort of brides competing for the love of, um, you know, Mac the Knife. <laughs> but was, I remember very little. <laughs> was it like an opera? Like, like what no, was the musical it was, style? No, the musical style, I feel like I remember there being sort of like flute. And um, it was kind of brash, though. It did feel like it was informed by, well, I mean, I don't know, that's backwards. It did. It reminded me in a lot of ways of um, Three Penny in terms of like the approach to the vocals. Like it was kind of shouty um, and silly. Like there were a lot of gags. Um, but yeah, it didn't make a huge impression on me, as you can tell by my complete lack of knowledge. All right, I'm just going to open an hour and a half YouTube video of The mm. Beggar's Opera, the 1963 Great. BBC broadcast. And we're just going to see, we're just going to go to a random spot and see what it uh-huh. sounds like. Great. This was not prepared in advance. We're doing this live. It's going to talk around. Looks like Gilbert and Sullivan to me. Their costumes. 
Yeah, it didn't have this much music, the version I saw. Alright, I prefer Three Penny. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I remember it's sort of like an anti-opera, is sort of the whole thing. Like, it was supposed to be itself a critique of opera. Yeah, and um, Three Penny, I it, it was sort of like Bertolt Brecht, well, more accurately, um, his lover at the time, Elizabeth Hauptmann, uh, was a fan of uh, the Beggar's Opera and how it sort of uh, played around with the tropes of opera and dealt with, like, class struggle. I mean, it was an opera for beggars. I don't know if beggars were really going to see the opera, but it was sort of <laughs> right. intended to be, you know, for the lower classes, whereas opera is this, you know, high-class elitist institution. And um, she was very inspired by that. So really what happened was she was involved with Bertolt Brecht, who is a already famous and popular playwright in Germany, and he wasn't really working on it. She was translating the Beggar's Opera into German. So Brecht went to impress this impresario, Ernst Joseph Ofricht, and this is what I, I'm getting this from Wikipedia. I do have like actual book research later, but this is from Wikipedia. So he was trying to impress okay. this, uh, this guy with a play <laughs> he was writing, but the guy didn't like the play, and the guy wanted to have a production to launch this brand new theater company. So when he didn't like Brecht's first idea, Brecht was like, oh, oh, um, well, I'm actually working on a translation of the Beggar's Opera. How about that? And he was not working on uh, translation of the Beggar's Opera. He was just knew that his uh, lover was working on it. So he claimed it for himself and then delivered her translation to the guy who signed a contract for it. So I don't think he like totally pretended she had nothing to do with it. I feel like her name has been on it from the start, but it's sort of like people didn't realize the extent to which she actually did this translation and not him. Mm, yeah, that's not surprising. That's interesting. Um, while you've been researching this, I just Googled and found pictures from the version I saw because I'm embarrassed by how little I remember mm -hmm. it. Um, it would have been June 2011, and it would have been um, the Regent Park's, Regent's Park Open Air Theater in England. Ah. Um, and I'm going through the pictures, and it's not really jogging my memory. Like, it's a lot of, like, um, corseted uh, women and men in high collars and a lot of, like, drunken shenanigans. Um but yeah, it failed to make a large impression. No, oh, I love... So anyway, back to what you were saying. I yeah. love the Regent's Park uh, open air theater. And the, the summer after you went to see Three Penny there, I saw a uh, production of A Midsummer Night's Dream there that I was obsessed with. And I told you about in detail. And I feel like you mentioned, you said that you... Oh, um, yeah, you told me about that Midsummer. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That you, mm -hmm. like, uh, that helped come up with some of your ideas for your... Um, well-acclaimed production of Midsummer that you directed the year after that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, my crowning, so. my crowning achievement as an art maker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I remember talking about that. Um, anyway, so the point is um, that the Beggar's Opera happened in Regent's Park, um, and that uh, Brecht's uh, lover at the time is responsible for Three Penny Opera. Yes. So that's just the book, though. So Brecht <laughs> is known as like a, a playwright, um, right? Sort of. I don't want to say experimental, but he was very much, um, Berlin at the time, I mean, if you've seen Cabaret, the musical, Cabaret's musical style is sort of intentionally an homage to the musical style of Kurt Weil, who did the music. Uh, Kurt Weil, I'm, I'm saying Weil, like, because the <laughs> W sounds like a V in German, but it's not like V-I-L-E, it's like W-E-I-L-L. -L. Anyway, uh, Kurt Weil wrote the uh, music for it, and his musical style was sort of borrowed uh, by the writers of Cabaret, because when you're talking sort of, you know, seedy German Berlin 
nightclub culture of the 1920s, that's the sort of world that Brecht and Vial were writing for, and that's what right. Cabaret was about. So the fact that uh, as we play more songs from Three Penny, you'll sort of notice a compare. Uh, they sound very similar to Cabaret, and that's totally intentional. Mm. Fun. I can't wait to talk about Cabaret. Um, so another thing, um, I guess let's start playing a little bit of music um, yeah, as we go into the beginning. It. So mm-hmm. I'm going to play a little bit of the opening of Three Penny, and I have never seen it. I've seen video clips of people performing it. I've listened to the soundtrack, and I've mm-hmm. read a whole bunch about it. But this is the sort of play where just listening to the soundtrack doesn't really do anything for it. It's, it's totally different. Sure. So Hannah's going to be in charge of telling us really about <laughs> uh, like how the show feels. But first, I'm going to play a bit of the opening number, the opening overture. Um, Great. Here we go. And how that reminded me of another musical. And I'll play a little clip of that musical afterwards. Right. So, so here's the prologue. You are about to hear oh, an opera for beggars. <laughs> since this opera was conceived, this with a splendor only a beggar could imagine. And since it had to be so cheap, even a beggar could afford it. It is called the Three Penny Opera. That's cute. Okay. <laughs> Hannah, are you familiar with Urinetown? Yes. Okay, is this reminding you of the opening of Urinetown? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you are about oh, to. Wait, crap. Okay. So now I'm going to play the opening of Urinetown, which I was in in high school, and I was like, oh my god, this sounds like Urinetown. So here's the opening of Urinetown. Yeah, this is wild. So, yes. So I, the first thing I, like, when I started listening to soundtrack, I was like, oh, wow, like, this sounds just like Urinetown. So I Googled Urinetown Kurt Vile, and basically, like, the writers of Urinetown intentionally were doing a Brecht Vile kind of, a sort of Brecht Vile satire uh, play with a sort of simple, almost Jewish klezmer-sounding orchestra, but for the 21st century. So that was also intentional, so... Um, if you don't know anything about Three Penny, but you know Cabaret or you know You're in Town, that's your entry into uh, Three Penny, is that those were inspired by Three Penny and the other uh, Vile Brecht musicals. So there you go. That was mm-hmm. a little comparison. Great. No, that's very interesting. Um, I'm reading, so we'll kind of get into it a little bit. I'm looking up this um, New York Times review of the, of the Three Penny with Alan Cumming, and um, it's really interesting. They're sort of confirming the point um, you made. So let me read you just a little section of this by Ben Brantley. This mm-hmm. is a review from 2006. Um, so that would have been, oh God, 11 years ago. So I would have been um, 15 when this came out. Is that true? 14 or 15? 14, I think. Yeah. So I remember seeing it because I remember my mom was nervous about me watching Three Penny, particularly this production. So, um, so they're talking about essentially this coming on the heels of the cabaret that was also at Studio 54 on Broadway. Um, where Alan Cummings started as the MC, and so they're drawing that comparison. Almost two and a half years after the roundabout's canny cash cow of a revival of cabaret closed at Studio 54 after more than five years in residence, the company is again inviting theatergoers to come to the cabaret old chum. This time, the occasion is Scott Elliott's production of the 1928 show that made musicals like Cabaret and Chicago possible. Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill's Three Penny Opera is the granddaddy of all the singing, stinging portraits of fat societies on their eaves of destruction. 
Mr. Elliot has even recruited one of the stars of the Roundabout Cabaret, Alan Cumming, who won a Tony for uh, playing the ghoulish MC in the Candor Ebb musical, and who here portrays the murdering, whoring, stealing McKeith, Mac the Knife, the Prince of Thieves in Stinking Corrupt London. But while it raises the kink quotient even higher than Cabaret did, this production has nothing like the same sustained point of view that might hook and hypnotize audiences. With Mr. Elliot overseeing a cast jam-packed with misused talent, including the pop stars Cindy Lauper and Nellie McKay, this three-penny takes Brecht's notion of the theater of alienation to new self-defeating extremes. We'll get into that. I agree with some of that. Um, I had forgotten that uh, Cindy Lauper was in this production until this moment. Yeah, so we're going a little out of order. I actually have That's a lot fine. of very interesting history stuff. Usually I front load the history talk, mm. but um, let's not get off the topic of Alan Cumming and Cindy Lauper. I've pulled up right. the, uh, the Tony performance. I'm not going to play the whole thing, uh, but I'm going to skip to... So I pulled up the Tony Awards performance in 2006. It is um, Alan Cumming and Cyndi Lauper singing the tango number. There's basically three numbers from the show that I had heard of before. It's the Ballad mm-hmm. of Mac the Knife, the tango, and then uh, Pirate Jenny. And we'll play all three of those over the course of tonight. But today um, I've skipped to a part in the tango where Cyndi Lauper and Alan Cumming are both singing. So here we Great. go. The farmer's girl had to pull the plow. It wasn't normal, but we could still play. And I got pregnant, and by you, you will agree. So when we always sit on top of me, because he didn't want to hurt our little child. But then it died one night in May, and she went wild. We said. Yes, Cindy. I really, I, I just love this. This music just puts you in like 1920s Berlin, like, yeah, like nothing it's else. Really, it's really wild. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's quiet enough background music. I'm just going <laughs> to leave it going while we. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Talk. great. Well, why don't you take us through some of the history of the production? I think we should probably square away with some plot, and then I think we can get into the nitty-gritty. Um, I would love to peel apart this revival a little more, um, but I think we should get people up to speed with kind of what the hell it's about. Essentially, like, uh, McKeith, McKeith uh, is like the London crook at the center of everything, and he's supposed to be very charismatic and very sexy. And he has various um, trysts with various women, um, some of one of whom's a prostitute, one of whom's the daughter of uh, Mr. Peachum, who's sort of a competing schemer in town. And so uh, McKeith marries Peachum's daughter, Polly. Um, and Peachum basically, like, through all these sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, um, indirect routes, tries to get him arrested. And he gets arrested, and um, he ends up getting um, betrayed by his sort of ex-lover, Jenny, who we have the song Pirate Jenny about. That's who Cindy Lauper played. So she betrays him. He gets arrested. Um, this other girl named Lucy, who's a whore, um, who is, it's revealed as pregnant with one of McKeith's children, most likely, helps him escape. Um, and then he gets betrayed again. And then in the end, the queen, like, message comes from the queen that she wants him. I think it's the queen. Um, she, she wants him freed. And then in the end, like, the actors address the audience and are like, good endings don't actually happen in real life. It's a very um, kind of socialist 
anti-capitalist critique, um, you mm-hmm. might have a better sense of how exactly it goes about critiquing capitalism. But it was a huge hit in 1928, uh, Berlin. However, it did not successfully transfer well to America. The first American production was in 1933. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, it closed after only 12 performances. It was mm-hmm. seen as very dour and grim and not... I mean, at this point, um, it's 1933, so we're like right in the middle of anything goes time. People are looking for these big, flashy, glitzy musicals. There couldn't possibly be a more out-of-place musical than this one. Um, it totally bombed. But um, in the meantime, as the rest of Broadway Binge has been going on, and we've been talking about Broadway musicals, there's been this parallel movement of off-Broadway musicals. Um, so today is going to be the big day where we sort of talk about off-Broadway. And Woo! So at first, off-Broadway wasn't the way it is today, where it's just like professional shows with cheaper tickets, smaller theaters, and that are physically not in the theater district. Back then, right. theater was basically all in the theater district, and to the extent the theater happened outside of Broadway, it was you know sort of amateur level, not equity actors, because equity was a thing even then. It was all. It was mostly in Greenwich Village, and it was it was very different. It was not. It, it was sort of like people who had nothing to do with Broadway, and it it wasn't a place for shows to you know debut and then go on to Broadway. And there were never hits. There was never a show that would become a long running hit off Broadway that just didn't make sense. It was a place for little theater. Uh, little theater was uh, one of the phrases for that sort of theater. Mm-hmm. And. What eventually happened was in the 1940s when FDR was doing the New Deal and sinking a lot of money into public works programs to put people back to work after the Depression, there was a uh, federal theater project, which is part of the WPA Works Progress Administration. And so for the years 1935 to 1939, America actually had federally funded theater, much like Britain does to this day. And people could sort of just apply and get uh, money to put on shows. So this one guy, Mark Blitstein, who was a communist, and this is back when a lot of people on the American left were communists because it was the 30s and they didn't realize yet that the Soviet Union was a disaster and should not be emulated. So you had a lot of like very intellectual college, like liberal elites, much like we are today, thinking that like communism was the bee's knees. So uh, Blitstein wrote the book lyrics and music of this very overtly communist i mean they didn't it didn't like say it was a communist show but it was a very much like workers of the world unite kind of show called the cradle will rock and um it was gonna get shut down by the police for some reason because of the content of the show or something like that so the the great story is that on opening night the uh, the police came in to shut the show down and they managed to find another theater that wasn't doing anything that night so a bunch of the cast members and blitzstein himself just picked up and walked over to this other theater. Also, Orson Welles, the famous Orson Welles, was the designer. He designed the sets and everything of... That's wild. I didn't know that. Yeah, of the original Cradle Will Rock. <coughs> but so they walked over to this new theater. There were no sets or anything. And a lot of the equity actors in the production, they had contracts saying they were not allowed to be on stage uh, performing the show in another theater other than the one that their employer had contracted for. So basically, they all sat in the audience because they couldn't go on stage. Blitzstein got up on stage with a piano. They... That had none of the costumes and none of the sets that had been made for this production, none of the orchestra that had been made for this production. Blitzstein just played all the songs on piano, and the cast members stood up from their seats in the audience and sang the roles. Um, sometimes, like, a duet would be sung by two people on opposite sides of the audience standing up singing together. 
the New York Times covered this. It was considered, you know, a great work of art. This sort of overly done communist show was now a much more sort of pared down affair mm-hmm. um, that was suddenly became very popular. And eventually they did get their stage back, but they realized, like, cut the costumes, cut the set. We're going to have all the actors sitting on stage in chairs facing the audience with one piano on <laughs> the stage, and they're going to stand up and sing their songs. So I'm going to play a little bit of uh, the, so- the title song, The Cradle Will Rock, from a 1964 off-Broadway revival. And this is Jerry Orbach singing, and we're going to hear more about <laughs> Jerry Orbach later. So this Great. is... Great, um, okay. Here's from The Cradle Will Rock. Oh, and by the way, Mark Blitzstein, who wrote The Cradle Will Rock, is the person who wrote the translation of uh, Three Penny, which became a huge hit in 1954. So they're related in that way. But here we go. Here's a little bit of The Cradle Will Rock. I'm not a huge fan, but whatever. This is a history lesson. This is a history lesson. We're middle class. We all got property. We also got our eyes open. This crowd here... Hiding up there in the cradle of the Liberty Committee. Upon the topmost bough of yonder tree now, like bees in their hives, the lords and their lackeys and wives. A swinging rockabye baby in a nice big cradle. Then they remark, the air is chilly up there. The sky beetle proud. I hate this. That be a- yeah. But in the way that it's sort of just one person singing and the piano in the background, which is like very much a thing you can picture on a million Broadway shows now, especially off-Broadway shows, that wasn't the thing before this. The Cradle Will Rock was the first off-Broadway musical hit. Well, there's actually one earlier that I'm not mentioning because it's sort of like unrelated. But it was like the first like what we think of as an off-Broadway hit, even though it never went to Broadway. And it sort of helped pioneer this sense of you do a small show, you don't glam it up too much. It's just a piano, mm-hmm. it's singers right in front of you in a small black box theater, and that's it. I mean, I feel like that identity is still tied up in off Broadway today. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Definitely. I feel like that's sort of the prevailing. That's 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 the relationship. And all across and the world, like colleges, high schools, regional theaters, who don't have the money to do Broadway shows, this is sort of the world that they live in. But that world, like, they didn't have that world to live in so much until a show like this. There was a little bit of that earlier on in, like, the 10s and 20s with the little theater movement, but not so much. So The Cradle Rock is 1937, and that was a big hit. And Mark Blitzstein eventually decides that he wants to do a new translation of The Beggar's Opera, and he wants to open it off-Broadway in sort of a small space, very simple, just um, just like his version of The Cradle Rock. So he talked to Kurt Weill, who eventually would die at age 50 in 1950. By the way, while this has all been going on, Kurt Weill, um, he was married to Lada Lenya, who is a famous actress. She was in Cabaret, actually, as Frau uh, What's-Her-Face, the older woman. Uh, Fräulein Schneider? Yes, she played Fräulein Schneider in the original Cabaret. She was married to Kurt Weill, and she was... She played Pirate... Not Pirate Jenny. She played... Uh, is, is the character's name Jenny the Whore? Yeah, Jenny. Yes, so she played Jenny in the original uh, Berlin version of Three Penny Opera. And then she also Mm -hmm. played it in this 1954 off-Broadway version after her husband's death. But in in 1933, uh, Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht both left Germany because the Holocaust was starting. Weill was Jewish, and that's why he had to get out. Brecht was a socialist, and that's why he had to get out. Um, Or a communist, really. And Brecht sort of went all over the place. He spent some time in America, but he absolutely hated America. 
Uh, he thought it was it was just terrible. And well, here here's a here's a quote by Brecht about American musical theater, which he thought was empty entertainment. He said, "The Broadway musical, which thanks to certain fiercely competing groups composed of speculators, popular stars, good scene designers." bad composers, witty if second-rate songwriters, inspired costumiers, and truly modern dance directors has become the authentic expression of all that is American. And the author of this book, uh, Larry Stemple, notes that was not intended as praise. Um, <laughs> <same> as, so, <laughs> That's so rude. So <laughs> eventually, so after World War II, because he was a diehard communist, Brecht went back to East Berlin, where he like wrote theater for mm-hmm. the communist uh, East Germans. But while loved mm-hmm. America and stayed in America and died in America in 1950. So this version goes up, and it was a unbelievable hit. The true first off-Broadway massive mega hit. It ran for 2707 performances or for seven years, which made this the longest-running show in New York history. It doesn't count as a Broadway show because it was off-Broadway, and it eventually got beaten by the Fantastics run, which was just insane for decades. Up to this point, this was the longest-running show in New York history, and it introduced a lot of really uh, famous actors who we've heard of today. Well, so first, I'll take it back a second. So this production was a huge hit, and um, it was in the 299-seat theater, Delice, L-Y-S, Mm-hmm. And one person wrote, the open Brecht epic form carried its own commentary on the narrow, realistic, Ibsen-esque psychological drama that dominated Broadway of the 1940s and 1950s. The sets were non-realistic. Mm-hmm. Entrances were made down the aisle. Actors occasionally addressed the audience directly from the thrust stage. Songs were sung straight out. So this stuff sounds like, I mean, we've seen this a million times now, like every college production right. is this sort of thing. But this was new. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting to hear, like, I don't know, the idea of right singing straight out, um, for example, to the audience, which, like, <laughs> I don't know, I just saw Spongebob on Broadway, which somehow hasn't worked its way into our podcasts yet. Um, but, like, that's the mode of a lot of the show. Um, and that's just what comes to mind immediately. But, like, even, like, Les Mis or Phantom, like, really any epic, that's the mode. Um, so what, was it just, like, everybody was singing to each other's faces Well, I, I think point? when they sung, sung straight out... <laughs> Maybe it means, like, not pretty, just, like, they just, like... Just, like, flat mask out to the audience. I don't need, I don't actually even know what that means. I, I don't want to try to parse it too much, because I feel like we're probably right. incorrect. <laughs> but it, it was just a very um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different sort of show. Like, it is a show that's sort of about... It feels like it's about exposing, like, the, you know, the, the societal evils of London. So it, it's very... Um, like wicked and evil and um it's all these bad people who we're supposed to think are a lot of fun doing bad things to each other um and there's a lot of sexual deviance in it and it's it's hard because it also feels like it's it's you know like oh isn't this fun and sexy and then it's judging us for feeling that way um so it's sort of like a very cruel show (laughs) in that way um so I, I guess I like the, the mode of like singing out to the audience and keeping it very stark feels in keeping with like that um, same social critique. Yeah. You know, that it is like, deal with it. This is what it looks like. We're not going to, you know, frill it up or, um, you know, help it go down easy. It's very like, I don't know, very brash, you know? I agree. So, um, so I don't know. Do, can I talk about this revival now a little more? <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about the revival, and at some point I'll loop it back around to like La Delenia. But um, yeah, you talk about the Great. revival now. Yeah, I mean, so 
Um, it's true that there was like a lot of sex in the survival and I saw it as a, I think, I guess a 14 year old. So I have like all these distinct and slightly traumatic memories of, um, seeing it with my mom. And my mom was told when she entered the theater with me that there was a moment of nudity. Um, and so she was like, okay, you know, my kid's 14. Um, we didn't talk about it in advance. I'll just cover her head during the moment of the nudity, which, you know, I don't know, to each their own. Parenting is hard. Um, I don't know if she made the right or the wrong choice, but uh, the way this manifested itself was anytime there was the suggestion that it might be the moment of nudity, my mom threw her jacket over my head. Because 14 year old. And like Hannah. it turned out like. <laughs> Yeah, and I had no so, idea. Like, most of the show is uh, sexual encounters, so it just made for like a really um, unpleasant viewing experience. Um, and the actual moment was like one of the, I think it was, um, I should look it up. Hang on, I can tell you real quick who it was. It was um, do, 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 do. Lucy Brown, who's sort of the, the prostitute, um, I think was played by a uh, man. So one of the like traditionally like uh, female lovers of McKeith was played by a man in the survival, which was all very, um, you know, it was, it was a lot, it was a lot more queer essentially. Like they really they queered it in a way that um, perhaps the original was not as queer who could say. Um, and so the man, like he flashed himself, his himself at one point to be like, to expose that he was like, uh, had been assigned the gender of male, I guess. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> Yeah, I think I actually even saw that part. Like, I think what she did was, like, there were a lot of other things that were just sort of, like, sex ballets that my mom was trying to prevent me from watching. <laughs> anyway, um, the point is, uh, yeah, it was it was just, like, this is my association with this show. Um, but, yeah, the production was just, like, super, um, like, leather porn, really, would be how I'd describe it. Like, have you seen any of the production photos? I have, yeah. I mean, I watched... Um... Yeah, a couple, some people uploaded like little clips. Um, so there's a, a big mm-hmm. fan of Cindy Lauper who like obtained a bunch mm-hmm. of clips of the of the show and uploaded them to the internet. So I've I've seen those. Fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I think like I can look now and I can read about the show and think about what I remember and try to assess it. You know, it's true that like 14 year old Hannah probably didn't really quite get the um, the effect of the production. Like I don't know that I was the intended audience. Um, I do remember that it, it was weird and like it ended, it sort of had like a, it's, it's deus ex machina moment. Um, Alan Cumming was in like gold, um, booty shorts and I think he was shirtless and he descended from the sky on like a golden horse and it was sort of this like weird entrance and it was like intentionally random. Um, and it was like their way of being like, fuck it, anything can happen. It's the theater. The rules aren't real. Um, and I remember even as like, yeah, 14-year-old being like, what? <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I think, like, before, like, on that same trip, we probably saw, like, you know, like, uh, like, Man of La Mancha and, like, Les Mis and Family Opera. And I think we saw um, Three Penny Opera, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it it only it only ran for three months, so it was not a critically yeah. acclaimed hit. It was not. I mean, I love me some Alan Cumming. Like, I think I'm here for it. Um I think if I saw it today, I'd like it, but, uh, yeah, it was just, it was very weird, and, um, I don't know, I think it is obvious to put it in conversation with Cabaret, because it felt a little bit like it was like, oh, we took it that far, Mm -hmm. we're gonna take it farther. Yeah, I I think, Um, yeah, I think it's a show that should be off-Broadway, I don't think it's meant to be on Mm -hmm. Broadway, I think that's why every time it goes on Broadway, it closes really fast, and the the time when it was successful (laughs) was off-Broadway, 
And I think I, I think it was Roundabout. Yeah, Roundabout did both, as you mentioned. And I think it was sort of like, oh, the audience loved Alan Cumming and Cabaret, and they paid us tons of money for right. it. Well, they're going to love this, but Cabaret is a fun... <laughs> even though Cabaret is sort of yeah. inspired by this, it's a right. fundamentally different show. It was written from the start to be on Broadway. It's not... It's mm-hmm. It's different. Yeah, I agree. Um, it is worth mentioning Jim Dale and Anna Steyer, mm-hmm. who are both in the revival. Jim Dale's sort of like, I don't know, a workhorse of Broadway. If you look him up, he's just created a ton of roles. He's um, super funny, and he played Peachum, and I just remember thinking he was really funny, and he had a lot of like great physical shtick. Um, I actually met him in person um, a couple years later. My cousin um, was ADing a show on Broadway that he was in, and so I met him, and I remember asking him about Three Penny. <laughs> Um, and he was talking to me about uh, working with an actress named Nellie McKay, I believe her name is, who played um, Polly, Polly Peachum. Yeah, and he was telling me this story about her, and uh, it was just interesting. So I don't do, know. I have these weird affiliations with the show. Do you know the story? Could you tell us the story? I, I do. I think I. I don't know if I want to. I think it was sort of. Um... Okay. Um... <laughs> yeah, maybe we, we redact this section. Yeah, I know. So like that's I'll the information that. I have. Um. Yeah. And Jim Dale also uh, did. He was the reader of the Harry Potter audiobooks. Um, so if you if you've listened right. to Harry Potter audiobooks, you know Jim Dale from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So also Anna Gasteyer from um, SNL, Shvetty mm-hmm. Ball's fame, um, also played Elphaba in Wicked oh, um, in Atlanta. Do you know about this? Yeah, she has a killer voice. Oh. So she plays Mrs. Peachum, who's um, obviously Mr. Peachum's wife, um, and she just sort of has a couple really shouty numbers. But, I don't know, I remember she had this great blazer. I'm a big Anna Gasteyer fan. Um, I also love her in Reefer Madness, uh, which uh, also stars Alan Cumming, which uh, hopefully we talk about down the road. Wasn't Alan Cumming in The Good Wife? Am I, am I making this up? Oh, he is in The Good Wife, yeah. I follow Alan Cumming on Instagram. I'm a big fan of Alan Cumming. You've met him. And he's always posting, like, weird behind the scenes. We've um, met him. I? Oh, yes, I have. Yeah, we, we met him together. We met him together. Maybe we should share that adage. That's... That's yeah, fun. it was, um, he was, came to speak at Penn, like, the, uh, LGBT society brought him, and then he was just going around mm-hmm. party hopping to, like, college parties afterwards, um, not doing anything mm-hmm. untoward, uh, don't, don't <laughs> think it for a second, he was just coming to, like, hang out and say hi to people, and... Yeah, he was great. <laughs> and, um, the Underground Shakespeare Society had just done a play and was having their mm-hmm. cast party, and Hannah and I were not in the Underground Shakespeare play, but we just no, showed up. Certainly not. We just went because we had a friend who was in the show, so we went to the Underground Shakespeare cast party, and then out of nowhere, Alan Cumming just rolls into like someone's like wild. tiny apartment. And Underground Shakespeare is not like the cool place to hang out on campus, but Alan Cumming no. rolls into the cast party and just like stands around chit chatting with everyone. And um, yeah, it was wild. And you had a good conversation with him. That I hung back. I did. I, I talked to, to take him. Pictures. Yeah, he well, he gave a speech at Penn um, that was really lovely. He talked about his book, "Not My Father's Son," um, which I own and actually haven't read yet. Um, but he gave like a lovely speech about um, being queer. Um, I I know at the time he identified as bisexual. I think he still does. And he talked about his relationship with his sexuality and being a performer, and uh, talked about eliminating shame from his life. And it was very lovely. And I also remember he was wearing this um, suit, essentially what looked like a suit with like a, a collared shirt underneath. And he had this blazer on. When he took off the suit jacket, it was a sleeveless uh, shirt. And it was just a really exciting moment for me. So um, just want to relay that to our listeners. Yeah, he, he was um, the nicest down-to-earth guy um, who just wanted to yeah. like 
like he knew people wanted to talk to him and he was just like engaged in every conversation and like listening and like really yeah. just like I've like almost never seen a celebrity so good with fans before. Well, he wanted to hang out. He wasn't super interested in like receiving like a lot of like adoration either, which was pretty cool. Yeah. He like wanted to hang out with us. Yeah, it wasn't even it wasn't was even really a fan wild. thing. It was just like he just like yeah, he was just conversing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was wild. Uh, um, celebrities, they're people too. Anyway, yeah. so um, some three more penny opera, <laughs> three penny opera. So let's play some more. Yeah, let's play. Music some, so I'm going to go back to uh, the 1954 version because there's a soundtrack of that. Also of note, this was the first off Broadway show that had an original cast album because it was such a hit that had not mm. happened before. Also of note, this was the first and only time when someone has won a Tony Award for an act for acting in an off Broadway show. Uh, Lada Lenya, the the uh, widow of Kurt Vile. Mm-hmm. played Jenny, and she won the uh, a Tony Award, I think, for Best Supporting Act, either Best Actress or Supporting Actress, probably Supporting based on the size of the role. And I think at this time, there sort of just wasn't a whole big off-Broadway musical scene that was distinct from the Broadway musical scene. So this was the first time mm-hmm. anyone had ever put forth a performance off-Broadway that was capable of like being as good as a Tony thing, and they didn't yet have the rules to sure. exclude off-Broadway, so they just gave her the award, and then in the future, they sort of made the distinction. Interesting. Um, so right now, we're going to play uh, Pirate Jenny. Um, also, Lada Lenya, so we mm-hmm. mentioned that she was in uh, Cabaret, but the place where she's most famous for, unfortunately, because, yeah, I mean, she has like a long theatrical career, but the place that she's most famous for is that she played the villain in the very second James Bond movie from Russia with Love. Um <sighs> And she had a shoe with a, a spike that came out of the toe with poison in it. And she had a fight with James Bond at the end of the movie where she was trying to stick him with the poison shoe. And I think he managed to like mm-hmm. turn it around on her and she died. Um, and that was in like 1962 or 1963. So that's uh-huh. what she's most famous for. But here she is singing Pirate Jenny uh, in a Tony winning turn. Oh, no. Here she is. <laughs> Gentlemen can watch while I'm scrubbing the floors And I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking And maybe once you tip man it makes you feel swell And I'm ready what a friend did I'm ready old hotel And you never guess to who you are talking You never guess to who you are talking Suddenly one night there's a scream in the night And you wonder what could that have been And you see me kind of grinning while I'm scrubbing and you wonder what she got to grin. And a ship, a black freighter, with a skull on its masthead, will be coming in. Um, I mean, that gives you the impression. I don't really know why Pirate mm-hmm. Jenny is one of the hit songs from the show, but... <laughs> Not, nothing gets her i mean she's great but yeah okay so while we were listening to that um it's true that cindy lopper was actually replacing edie falco oh in that revival really who had yeah who had ties to the sopranos and couldn't do it um also worth noting um i'm just looking up versions of like songs from three penny um b Ar- Ar- b arthur from golden girls um played jenny yes. i guess no, well, lucy she um, played Lu- lucy sorry lucy um, and there's footage of her singing. I don't know if we're interested. In um, 
I, I did actually, so by coincidence, so yeah, this 1954 version we're talking about was the start of a lot of people. It was uh, one of B. Arthur's first roles. She was just a random off-Broadway person, a lot of like off-Broadway plays and like ensembles of small off-Broadway musicals before this. Uh, Jerry Stiller, who's Ben Stiller's father and also uh, has had a lot of notable movie roles himself, even relatively mm-hmm. recently, he uh, got, this is one of his first shows, this was the very first show for Jerry Orbach, and Jerry Orbach was uh, huge Broadway royalty. Um, after this was his first big role, he was uh, Mac the Knife, and also the street singer who sings the ballad of Mac the Knife, which we'll get to shortly. And um, later on, he would be in Broadway shows like Promises, Promises. He was in the original Law and Order for like a million years, and um, super famous mm-hmm. for that. So Jerry Orbach was a huge Broadway legend. The video I played earlier from The Cradle Will Rock, mm-hmm. that was him singing. Um, and I'll play his Mac the Knife soon. So this was his first thing. Uh, B. Arthur. Great. I actually, before we started, pulled up a video of B. Arthur singing. Uh, yes! Let's so, hear that. I'm interested. Yeah, here's, here is a video of B. Arthur singing a song in, in a production of something. <laughs> so he, this is, this is okay. B. Arthur. Just one more Wait. round, friend. Hannah's really trying to remember what song this is in Three Penny Opera. I'm looking it up. It's Good Night But Not Goodbye. Um, yeah, it's not. I don't think it's from. Um, I don't think it's from Three Penny Opera. <laughs> Why are we listening to this? <laughs> this is from the Star Wars Holiday this? Special. Yeah, that's what it is. Bay Arthur sing. Bay Arthur, what? You can hear End the cantina now. music. We really got off the rails. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, I never was a Golden Girls fan or All in the Family. Why were we playing So the that, only place Jeremy? I've There's ever seen Bay Arthur is that she somehow got wrangled into singing a song in the Star Wars Holiday Special from 1978. Why? What could be less relevant to what we're doing here? I'm going to play B. Arthur singing Pirate Jenny because that is relevant to our podcast. Okay, can you do that? I guess you can. I can. Okay. I can. Hang on. All right, it's happening. It's probably just going... Can you hear it? No, because it's just going into your headphones. Here, I'll, I'll pull it up. Oh wait, it's not working because I have headphones. Yeah. In. I'm an idiot. Yeah, I'll, I'll play it. <laughs> she, she's play old. It? Okay. She's old during this. Jeremy. You have to skip about a forty-five you know, seconds day. in. All right. Um, also worth noting, the revival was a translation. Was a translation by Wallace Shawn. Yes, the, the newer new version. Um, the version that yeah. you saw was Wallace Shawn, um, as opposed to the Mark yeah. Witstein tra- uh, translation from '54. Yeah. How about? Okay, we should probably this point. get. We 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 owe our our um, many listeners probably a little more um, analysis of the show. Oh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> um, so now let's play the biggest hit song from the show. This is the okay. Jerry Orbach version of Mac the Knife. This, Can we compare it to the Alan Cumming version afterwards? Of the Alan Cumming? I don't think there is one online. Yes. 
All right, I'm trying to. Find oh, and he didn't sing it. He didn't sing it. It was about him, but he didn't actually no, sing it himself. You're not wrong. Um. So anyway, here's you're not wrong. Here's Jerry Orbach singing the ballad of, of Mac the Knife, which is the biggest hit. Great. And it was also a big chart-topping hit for Bobby Darin and Louis Armstrong. So I'll play a little bit of their versions mm-hmm. after this. Oh, it's incredible songs. Oh, the shark has pretty teeth, dear, and he shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has Mackie there, and he keeps it out of sight. Okay. I think that was Jerry Orbach. Mm-hmm. It might be someone singing it about him, but I believe in... Th- it sounds like Jerry Orbach. Yeah, I, th- I think in that version, they had Jerry Orbach sing The Ballad of Mac the Knife while pretending to be, like, a singer. I'm going to play two different versions mm-hmm. that sound very different, but this was the crossover hit right. and the first off-Broadway crossover hit. So here's Bobby Darin singing, who's, like, someone I've always heard of, but, like, I'm not really familiar with his work. Oh, I've heard this version many times. So that was Bobby Darren. You know that one? Mm-hmm. I know that one very well. One of my friends, I believe my friend uh, Willie, put that on a mix CD oh. for me in high school, so I used to listen to it all That's the time. That's adorable. Uh, let's do Louis Armstrong, mm-hmm. and then I'm done with prepared class. Also a good yes. version. Let's <laughs> okay. start with his trumpet part. Oh, the shock has pretty deep, dear. And he shows them very white. Just a giant knife as my heat. And it keeps it out of sight. Okay, there we go. Always good. Always a good. I really like that one. Yeah, I like that one too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so so let's get into it. Like, I don't know. Uh, What do we think of this show? Do you think it's a good show? Like the soul of Three Penny Opera. What's it about for you? Well, you, I mean, you tell me. I feel sort of unqualified to be reviewing it. Um. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, I don't know what I think of it. I mean, I am interested in it, I guess, um, I don't know, academically, like for in all the ways that we talked about, like the ways it kind of introduced this, um, I don't know, new vocabulary to Broadway musicals or really to like the off-Broadway musicals. So I like it for that reason, and um, you know I love dark shit, so like I love the seediness and um, like, I don't know, uh, the darkness of it. Um, And like I love that it lent itself to such a weirdly pornographic production in uh, 2000, what did I say? 2006. Six. Um, Yeah, so like, I mean, that appeals to me. Thanks, Broadway Man 5. Um, <laughs> for those who are only tuning into this episode, we have a hater on the internet who uh, thinks that I think that um, all imagery is sexual, so um, I don't know that this would be a good episode. But yeah, because in, in the 2006 Three Penny, everything is sexual. <laughs> it's true that everything was sexual. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I think it's like a 
like a an enduring or like a deeply um meaningful show like i think it succeeds in um you know telling a story of like sexy corruption in london um and like i don't know how i feel about the like the ending being like we're just punishing you for watching the show like um you know there's no good in the world like it it does feel like it um probably comes out of a period when people really believed in the power of the broadway musical um and i feel like we're I mean, I don't know if that was Deconstructing. a more optimistic time, but I feel like it was commenting on the form in a way that, like, maybe is less successful now. Um, you know, we talked last week about how, like, the Broadway musical, like, was the pop culture of the moment, and so I imagine this just packed more of a wallop than than now. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. And like when it was originally done in Berlin in the twenties, it was sort of a critique of the Weimar Republic. Yeah. Which wasn't as urgent in America. In America people who went to go see Broadway shows, especially wealthier audiences who could afford the tickets, didn't want to see this sort of critique on the Broadway stage. So it bombed there. And then when it came back in the fifties, mm. its success wasn't so much even though it was very much written by a communist writing, taking, uh, translating the work of Brecht, another communist, the audiences seem to flock to it not as a communist critique of capitalism, but as an off-Broadway critique of Broadway, um, which had never been mm-hmm. done before. And there still is room, sure. for, if it opened up off-Broadway now, I'm sure it would do all right. But now off-Broadway isn't as much a critique of Broadway. Off-Broadway is where you go see right. Hamilton and the Great Comet of 1812 before they transfer to Broadway. Um, sure. I mean, we still have like forbidden Broadway, yeah. right? But which I'm not, I'm not um, fond of. But okay, so, so, so easy to take something it. down. So You're much not... harder to build something up. <laughs> so easy. Oh, quotables from Jeremy Berman. Um, that's nice. Um, so okay, I was just thinking though. Um, so I'm thinking ahead to like, is the show good today? I would be fascinated to see a Trump era three penny opera. Huh. I like um, that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Like like. Um, because I do feel like it comes from a place of, like, anger and disgust um, with a political regime. Like, we were just talking about that a little bit. And, um, yeah, like, the feeling... I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think there would be something really interesting. Like, think about our relationship with the media today um, and our relationship with, um, I don't know, evil and, uh, like, deviance and the way it permeates our government. Could be very interesting to see a Trump-era three-penny opera. I wonder if one exists. I'm going to Google it right now. That's a really good idea. Right? So I don't know. But I do think there's something there, I guess. Like, I'm not willing to totally dismiss Three Penny as, like, an experiment that, you know, was successful in that moment, which yeah. I feel like was what I was arguing only a moment ago. Um, do you want to get into the scoring, or do you feel like you have more to say? I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I have much more to say. Um, do we have other things we want to hit upon? I can't think of anything. Mm. This, lo- this episode was longer than I anticipated because we mm. had to get through all that off-Broadway stuff. But that's important because... It's important. Yeah. It's important build-up. Because we're going to be doing off-Broadway shows, too. Yes, we are. Because uh, no stone gets left unturned. Um, I did just Google Trump-era three-penny opera. And this is an article about um, Spotlighter's Theater to give three-penny opera a Baltimore twist. Okay, this came out in 2017. Um, but they do say that it is a Trump-era... Hang on, let me find it. Um... Spotlighter's Theater promises a three-penny opera freshly relevant to the start of the Trump era. Okay, I don't know. I don't know that I care about this production, but yeah. the point is, if I were to do three-penny opera, um, I would be interested to uh, set it in a way that's commenting on our, our yeah. time today. Okay, wait, well, hold on. If, um, on. if only you had a theater company of your own to do such a thing. If only I had a theater company of my own. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> Just a subtle, a subtle uh, 
a subtle jab. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the Greenfield Collective okay, could do more with its time than a Three Penny Revival. But and Three Penny, if, I mean, I'm not, not disinterested. Yeah. I'm not disinterested. You know, um, I would go. Coming attractions, you would come. Yeah. Okay. Wait. So this Baltimore production, it was staged both in London, I think like 1883 or something, and then concurrently also the setting was both London and um, also the Trump inauguration. So. Ooh. Interesting. Anyway, let's get into some rankings, I guess. I think we've said what we need to say. Okay, you go first on all three rankings. Great. Um, starting off with, was, was it, it good? Was it important? Was it important? Um, um, you know, I'll give it like, I'll give it a, a seven and a half. Okay, that's a good score. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm go- yeah it, it innovated in the genre. It sort of was really important in terms of like the off-Broadway conversation and it introduced a new style, not the most groundbreaking thing ever. Yeah, I'm going to give it a nine, um, not because mm. of not because of sort of the underlying show, which, you know, opened on Broadway in 1933 and no one cared, but because of just the off-Broadway version's effect on off-Broadway and then the effect, the trickle-down effect across the entire country in theater that everyone was doing mm-hmm. um and and really that yeah, nine might belong higher, but go no ahead. it's okay Sorry. that nine might belong more to the cradle will rock which we didn't do but mm-hmm. because we're doing this That's one fine. yeah so anyway there we go okay interesting all right great what's up next was um, it good was it good how good was it compared to only the shows that we have talked about thus far i mean okay i like it um although i don't know that i articulated it particularly well was it good um yeah let's give it an eight and a half for me Okay, um, I feel bad giving it, like, a good orbit. So, I, yeah, I feel this... We're going to probably run into more situations in the future where, like, there's no good adaptation for one of us to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I... From the clips I watched and from the soundtrack I listened to, which I understand is very not representative of the show, I still was not that impressed. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a five. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Heard. Interesting. And now, is it good today? Yes. Which I guess for you is, was the 06 version good? I don't know. I mean, no, like, I think there's, I don't know. Or is the I, Trump I'm interested in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested in it. Um, is it good today? I do think it, like, would require, like, a pretty deft directorial hand that was going to do something with it. Um, is it good today? I'm going to give it a, uh, I'm going to give it, like, a seven. Okay. Um, yeah. I think I'm going to give it a four, which is the same thing I gave what? on The Town. They're both shows that, that I... That is disrespectful. <sighs> Three I can't penny. This. I mean... It's fine. No, it's what it is. It is what it is. So I have this, this all in an Excel spreadsheet. First with the yeah, it's okay. So okay. I, it all, it all auto-tallies. So the total number is 41, which... Great. Let's see. 41 places it behind... It's It's decently well, actually. It's... Behind Showboat Nanny, Get Your Gun, and it's ahead of the bottom ones like Kiss Me Kate, Carousel, Pal Joey, Anything Goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. I mean, I do think as we creep into shows that are a little more familiar to us and more of our era, like the scores will continue to creep up. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I think so. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, like and... we're no longer punishing the shows. Well, we still will be, but punishing them for being completely irrelevant drivel. Um, yeah, which I think we were for a hot second. So I had considered. I haven't mentioned this on the air because I'm always worried the episode's going to run too long when I finally mention it. Mm. But I'd considered the idea of adding a fourth objective score, which is um, mm. based on how long mm-hmm. the show ran in its original production, 
um, or at least in like mm-hmm. in this case, we would talk the original off Broadway production. And basically, the way the score would work is, I would see what's uh, the longest running show of all time. How many if, when it came out? How many performances did that show have? Divide this show's run by that run to see like what percentage of that run it had, and then sort of turn it into a one to ten score. So like, if a show breaks the record for the longest run of all time, it gets a ten. If a show had like a 70 percent of the length of the most recent like record holder, then that gets a seven. So sort of a way to like add in an objective fourth mm-hmm. score. Here's here's what I'm gonna propose. Here's what I'm gonna propose because I'm interested, and I do think there's like a certain level of like course correction that's necessary because we're just not objective because we're uh, human beings. I think when we do our final docket, like when we're really setting up our like final sort of judgment of these shows, which we've talked about, we do at a certain point. I think that should be the point at which like we retroactively introduce that score as a means of comparison. Yeah, um, as a and, of sort of offsetting human error. Yeah, what I'm sort of doing now as we, I, I'm doing it as we go, just to sort of save time. Is I'm sort of factoring mm. those numbers in, and I have two lists side by side: our original list, and then the list of what the list would look like if we added in that fourth score. And the original list is always, I think, going to be our main list. But just as a point of curiosity, if you're curious what the second list sure. would look like, our current list we have South Pacific in first, and then Oklahoma and Guys and Dolls are tied for second. The mm-hmm. list with runs taking into account has Oklahoma and South Pacific tied for first. So Oklahoma gets bumped up into a tie for first. Guys and Dolls uh, is in third place. And it, it's it's interesting. I can post both of the lists online on our website, uh, broadwaybinge.podbean.com, yeah. if you want to look. Right now, Three Penny is ranked seven out of 13 musicals on our... Um, wait, why out of 13? That doesn't make any sense. Have we done 13? Yeah, we have. Um, Three Penny is currently ranked seventh out of 13 on our main list. On the list that takes run into account, it gets bumped up from seventh place to fifth place because it broke the record for longest run of all time at that point. So, love it. Interesting. That's just a interesting. Okay, yeah. Trivia. I point. love. I love. Um, I love a. I love an additional score. I think that's interesting and useful. Okay, I don't. I. I kind of like the idea that yeah. it's all subjective in us talking. So I don't think I want to make that the official score, but it's just a, a, a mm-hmm. little trivia point. Great. Okay. All right. So. All right. So everyone... um, I think our work here is done. <laughs> Thank you for I indulging agree. me, so I could um, unpack my. Uh, childhood experience watching three penny opera with alan cumming of course um and everyone fun for me everyone listening out there um if you're not subscribed to the podcast and you found this somewhere else please subscribe to the podcast on any podcast app and that way you'll be able to get the episode as soon as it comes out um you can find all of our episodes on broadwaybinge.podbean.com along with some pictures and links our twitter is at broadway underscore binge our instagram is at broadway binge with no underscore And feel free to leave us a tweet. We'll probably mention it on the air. Um, And next week, we're going to be doing the pajama game, hopefully with a special guest. You will find out that. Woo! All right. Sounds good. Bye, everyone. Goodbye.